Section 46 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 2 by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. He revised some sheets of Lord Hales's Annals of Scotland and wrote a few notes on the margin with red ink, which he bade me tell his lordship did not sink into the paper and might be wiped off with a wet sponge so that he did not spoil his manuscript. I observed to him that there were very few of his friends so accurate as I could venture to put down in writing what they told me as his sayings. Johnson, why should you write down my sayings? Boswell, I write them when they are good. Johnson, nay, you may as well write down the sayings of anyone else that are good. But where, I might with great propriety have added, can I find such? I visited him by appointment in the evening, and we drank tea with Mrs. Williams. He told me he had been in the company of a gentleman whose extraordinary travels had been much the subject of conversation. Footnote, Bruce, the Abyssinian traveller, as is shown by Piozzi letters. End of footnote. But I found that he had not listened to him with that full confidence without which there is little satisfaction in the society of travellers. I was curious to hear what opinion so able a judge as Johnson had formed of his abilities, and I asked if he was not a man of sense. Johnson, why, sir, he is not a distinct relater, and I should say he is neither abounding nor deficient in sense, I did not perceive any superiority of understanding. Boswell, but will you not allow him a nobleness of resolution in penetrating into distant regions? Johnson, that, sir, is not to the present purpose. We are talking of his sense. A fighting cock has a nobleness of resolution. Next day, Sunday, April the 2nd, I dined with him at Mr. Hull's. We talked of Pope. Johnson. He wrote his Dunciad for fame. That was his primary motive. Had it not been for that, the dunces might have railed against him till they were weary without his troubling himself about them. He delighted to vex them, no doubt, but he had more delight in seeing how well he could vex them. Footnote. That the design, in square brackets of the Dunciad, was moral, whatever the author might tell either his readers or himself, I am not convinced. The first motive was the desire of revenging the contempt with which Theobald had treated his Shakespeare, and regaining the honour which he had lost by crushing his opponent. Johnson's Works, Volume 8, page 338, end of footnote. The Odes to Obscurity and Oblivion, in ridicule of Cool Mason and Warm Grey, being mentioned, Johnson said, They are Coleman's best things. Footnote. Daughter of Chaos and Old Night, Sumerian Muse, all hail, That wrapped in never-twinkling gloom canst write, And shadowest meaning with thy dusky veil. What? 
poet sings and strikes the strings it was the mighty theban spoke he from the ever-living lyre with magic hand elicits fire heard ye the din of modern rhymers bray it was cool m blank n or warm g blank y involved in tenfold smoke coleman's prose on several occasions end of footnote upon its being observed that it was believed these odes were made by coleman and lloyd jointly johnson nay sir how can two people make an ode perhaps one made one of them and one the other footnote these odes writes coleman were a piece of boys play with my schoolfellow lloyd with whom they were written in concert Ibid. in the connoisseur they had also written in concert their humour and their talents were well adapted to what they had undertaken, and Beaumont and Fletcher present what is probably the only parallel instance of literary cooperation so complete that the portions written by the respective parties are undistinguishable. Southey's Cooper, end of footnote. I observed that two people had made a play and quoted the anecdote of Beaumont and Fletcher who were brought under suspicion of treason because while concerting the plan of a tragedy when sitting together at a tavern one of them was overheard saying to the other i'll kill the king johnson the first of these odes is the best but they are both good they exposed a very bad kind of writing boswell surely sir mr mason's elfrida is a fine poem at least you will allow there are some good passages in it johnson there are now and then some good imitations of milton's bad manner i often wondered at his low estimation of the writings of gray and mason of gray's poetry i have in a former part of this work expressed my high opinion and for that of mr mason i have ever entertained a warm admiration Footnote. Boswell, writing to Temple two days later, recalled time when you and I sat up all night at Cambridge and read Grey with a noble enthusiasm, when we first used to read Mason's Alfreda, and when we talked of that elegant knot of worthies, Grey, Mason, Walpole, etc. Letters of Boswell, end of footnote. His Elfrida is exquisite, both in poetical description and moral sentiment, and his Caractacus is a noble drama. Footnote. I have heard Mr. Johnson relate how we used to sit in some coffee-house at Oxford and turn M blanks, C blank, R blank, C T blank, U blank, S into ridicule, for the diversion of himself and of chance comers in the elf blank da says he was too exquisitely pretty i could make no fun out of that piozzi's anecdotes i doubt whether johnson used the word fun which he describes in his dictionary as a low cant in square bracket slang word end of footnote 
can I omit paying my tribute of praise to some of his smaller poems, which I have read with pleasure, and which no criticism shall persuade me not to like? If I wondered at Johnson's not tasting the works of Mason and Gray, still more have I wondered at their not tasting his works, that they should be insensible to his energy of diction, to his splendour of images, and comprehension of thought. Tastes may differ as to the violin, the flute, the oboe, in short, all the lesser instruments, but who can be insensible to the powerful impressions of the majestic organ? His taxation, no tyranny being mentioned, he said, I think I have not been attacked enough for it. Attack is the reaction. I never think I have hit hard unless it rebounds. Footnote. According to Dr. T. Campbell's diary, Johnson on March the 16th had said that taxation, no tyranny, did not sell. End of footnote. Boswell. I don't know, sir, what you will be at. Five or six shots of small arms in every newspaper and repeated cannonading in pamphlets might, I think, satisfy you. Footnote. Six days later he wrote to Dr. Taylor, The patriots pelt me with answers. Four pamphlets, I think, already, besides newspapers and reviews, have been discharged against me. I have tried to read two of them, but did not go through them. Notes and queries. End footnote. But, sir, you'll never make up this match of which we have talked with a certain political lady, since you are so severe against her principles. Footnote. Mrs. Macaulay, says Mr. Croker, who quotes Johnson's works, volume 6, page 258, where she is described as a female patriot bewailing the miseries of her friends and fellow citizens. End of footnote. Johnson, nay, sir, I have the better chance for that. She is like the Amazons of old. She must be courted by the sword. But I have not been severe upon her. Boswell, yes, sir, you have made her ridiculous. Johnson, that was already done, sir. To endeavour to make her ridiculous is like blacking the chimney. I put him in mind that the landlord at Ellen in Scotland said that he heard he was the greatest man in England, next to Lord Mansfield. Footnote, see Boswell's Hebrides, August the 24th, 1773, and post-September the 24th, 1777, for another landlord's account of Johnson, end a footnote. I sir, said he, the exception defines the idea. The Scotchman could go no farther. The force of nature could no farther go. Footnote from Dryden's lines on Milton, end a footnote. Lady Miller's collection of verses by fashionable people which were put into her vase at Bath East and Villa near Bath in competition for honorary prizes being mentioned, he held them very cheap. Footnote. 
Horace Walpole wrote on January the 15th, 1775, letters, they, in square brackets, the Millers, hold a Parnassus fair every Thursday, give out rhymes and themes, and all the flux of quality at Bath contend for the prizes. A Roman vase dressed with pink ribbons and myrtles receives the poetry, which is drawn out every festival. Six judges of these Olympic games retire and select the brightest compositions, which the respective successful acknowledge, kneel to Mrs. Calliope Miller, kiss her fair hand, and are crowned by it with myrtle, with I don't know what. End of footnote. Bourrimet, said he, is a mere conceit, and an old conceit now. I wonder how people were persuaded to write in that manner for this lady. Footnote. Miss Burney wrote in 1780, Do you know now that, notwithstanding Bath Eastern is so much laughed at in London, nothing here is more tonish than to visit Lady Miller? She is a round, plump, coarse-looking dame of about forty, and while all her aim is to appear an elegant woman of fashion, all her success is to seem an ordinary woman in very common life, with fine clothes on. Madame D'Arblay's diary, end of footnote. I named a gentleman of his acquaintance who wrote for the vase. Johnson. He was a blockhead for his pains. Boswell. The Duchess of Northumberland wrote, footnote, Yes, on my faith, there are bouri may on a buttered muffin made by her grace the Duchess of Northumberland. Walpole's letters. She was, Walpole writes, a jovial heap of contradictions. She was familiar with the mob, while stifled with diamonds, and yet was attentive to the most minute privileges of her rank, while almost shaking hands with a cobbler. Memoirs of the Reign of George III. Dr. Percy showed her Goldsmith's Ballad of Edwin and Angelina in manuscript, and she had a few copies privately printed. Forster's Goldsmith, end of footnote. Johnson, sir, the Duchess of Northumberland may do what she pleases. Nobody will say anything to a lady of her high rank. But I should be apt to throw blanks, verses in his face. Footnote, perhaps Mr. Seward who was something of a literary man, and who visited Bath, into footnote. I talked of the cheerfulness of Fleet Street, owing to the constant quick succession of people which we perceive passing through it. Johnson, my sir, Fleet Street has a very animated appearance, but I think the full tide of human existence is at Charing Cross. Footnote. Rerum fluctibus in medius, et tempestatibus urbis. Horace Epistles, Book 2, Epistle 2, line 84, into footnote. He made the common remark on the unhappiness which men who have led a busy life experience when they retire in expectation of enjoying themselves at ease, and that they generally languish for want of their habitual occupation and wish to return to it. He mentioned as strong an instance of this as can well be imagined. 
an eminent tallow chandler in London, who had acquired a considerable fortune, gave up the trade in favour of his foreman, and went to live at a country house near town. He soon grew weary, and paid frequent visits to his old shop, where he desired that they might let him know their melting days, and he would come and assist them, which he accordingly did. Here, sir, was a man to whom the most disgusting circumstance in the business to which he had been used was a relief from idleness. Footnote. Qui semel adspexit quantum misappetitus praestent, mature rereat repetatque relicta. Horace Epistles, Book 1, Epistle 7, line 96. To his first state let him return with speed, who sees how far the joys he left exceed his present choice, Francis. Malone says that Walpole, after he ceased to be minister, endeavoured to amuse his mind with reading. But one day, when Mr. Wellbore Ellis was in his library, he heard him say, with tears in his eyes, after having taken up several books, and at last thrown away a folio just taken down from a shelf, Alas, it is all in vain. I cannot read. Prize Malone. Lord Eldon, after his retirement, said to an innkeeper who was thinking of giving up business, Believe me, for I speak from experience, when a man who has been much occupied through life arrives at having nothing to do, he is very apt not to know what to do with himself. Later on, he said, it was advice given by me in the spirit of that principle of Brasenose, who, when he took leave of young men quitting college, used to say to them, Let me give you one piece of advice. Cave de resignationibus. And very good advice, too. Twisses Eldon. End footnote. On Wednesday, April the 5th, I dined with him at Mrs. Dilly's with Mr. John Scott of Amwell, the Quaker. Footnote. He had but lately begun to visit London. Such was his constant apprehension of the smallpox that he lived for twenty years within twenty miles of London without visiting it more than once. At the age of thirty-five he was inoculated and henceforth was oftener in town. Campbell's British Poets and a footnote. Mr. Langton, Mr. Miller, now Sir John, and Dr. Thomas Campbell. Footnote. Mr. S. Raymond, protonotary of the Supreme Court of New South Wales, published in Sydney in 1854 the Diary of a Visit to England in 1775 by an Irishman, the Reverend Dr. Thomas Campbell, with notes. The manuscript, the editor says, was discovered behind an old press in one of the offices of his court. The name of the writer nowhere appears in the manuscript. It is clear, however, that if it is not a forgery, the author was Campbell. In the Edinburgh Review for October 1859, its authenticity is examined and is declared to be beyond a doubt. Lord Macaulay aided the reviewer in his investigation, Ibid. 
he could scarcely, however, have come to his task with a mind altogether free from bias, for the editor has contrived, we are told, to expose another of Mr. Croker's blunders. Faith in him cannot be wrong who proves that Croker is not in the right. The value of this diary is rated too highly by the reviewer. The master of Balliol College has pointed out to me that it adds but very little to Johnson's sayings. So far as he is concerned, we are told scarcely anything of Mark that we did not know already. This makes the master doubt its genuineness. I have noticed one suspicious passage. An account is given of a dinner at Mr. Thrale's on April the 1st, at which Campbell met Murphy, Boswell and Baretti. Johnson's bombo were retailed in such plenty that they, like a surfeit, could not lie upon my memory. In one of the stories told by Murphy, Johnson is made to say, Damn the rascal! Murphy would as soon have made the Archbishop of Canterbury swear as Johnson, much sooner the Archbishop of York. It was Murphy who paid him the highest compliment that ever was paid to a layman by asking his pardon for repeating some odes in the course of telling a story. Post April the 12th, 1776. Even supposing that at this time he was ignorant of his character, though the supposition is a wild one, he would at once have been set right by Boswell and the Thrales, post under March the 15th, 1776. It is curious that this anecdote imputing profanity to Johnson is not quoted by the Edinburgh reviewer. On the whole, I think that the diary is genuine and accordingly I have quoted it more than once. End of footnote. I dined with him at Mrs. Dilly's with, etc., and Dr. Thomas Campbell, an Irish clergyman, whom I took the liberty of inviting to Mr. Dilly's table, having seen him at Mr. Thrale's, and been told that he had come to England chiefly with a view to see Dr. Johnson, for whom he entertained the highest veneration. He has since published a philosophical survey of the south of Ireland, a very entertaining book which has, however, one fault, that it assumes the fictitious character of an Englishman. We talked of public speaking. Johnson, we must not estimate a man's powers by his being able or not able to deliver his sentiments in public. Isaac Hawkins Brown, one of the first wits of this country, got into Parliament and never opened his mouth. Footnote. Mrs. Piozzi, anecdote, said that Johnson spoke of Brown as of all converses the most delightful with whom he ever was in company. Pope's bathos in his lines to Murray graced as thou art with all the power of words, so known, so honoured at the House of Lords, was happily parodied by Brown. Persuasion tips his tongue whene'er he talks, and he has chambers in the King's bench walks. Patterson's satires of Pope, see Boswell's Hebrides, September the 5th, end of footnote. 
For my own part, I think it is more disgraceful never to try to speak than to try it and fail, as it is more disgraceful not to fight than to fight and be beaten. This argument appeared to me fallacious, for if a man has not spoken, it may be said that he would have done very well if he had tried. Whereas if he has tried and failed, there is nothing to be said for him. Why then, I asked, is it thought disgraceful for a man not to fight, and not disgraceful not to speak in public? Johnson, because there may be other reasons for a man's not speaking in public than want of resolution. He may have nothing to say. <laughs> laughing. Whereas, sir, you know, courage is reckoned the greatest of all virtues, because unless a man has that virtue, he has no security for preserving any other. He observed that the statutes against bribery were intended to prevent upstarts with money from getting into Parliament. Footnote. Horace Walpole says of Beckford's Bribery Bill of 1768. Grenville, to flatter the country gentlemen who can ill afford to combat with great lords, nabobs, commissaries, and West Indians, declaimed in favour of the bill. Memoirs of the Reign of George III and a footnote. Adding that if he were a gentleman of landed property, he would turn out all his tenants who did not vote for the candidate whom he supported. Footnote. See Ante, volume 2, page 167, where he said much the same. Another day, however, he agreed that a landlord ought to give leases to his tenants and not wish to keep them in a wretched dependence on his will. It is a man's duty, he said, to extend comfort and security among as many people as he can. He should not wish to have his tenants mere ephemery, mere beings of an hour. Boswell's Hebrides, October the 10th, 1773, end of footnote. Langton. Would not that, sir, be checking the freedom of election? Johnson. Sir, the law does not mean that the privilege of voting should be independent of old family interest of the permanent property of the country. End of section 46